Amen. Well, I was planning on continuing our series in the book of Acts, but uh, given everything that's going on in, in people's lives in the church, I felt like a, a different message might be appropriate for this week. So if you turn your Bible to John chapter 11, we'll be looking at that passage for just a few minutes today. So we're in John chapter 11, and we'll be reading from verses 17 uh, to 44. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes. Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply troubled in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So when I was a child, uh, my way of dealing with difficulty, with pain and loss was to kind of put it off to the future. And I thought to myself, well, when I experience loss and when I experience grief, it will be in the future. And when I get to the future and I've grown up, then I'll be able to handle loss. But then you become an adult and you realize that you're no better able to handle loss than maybe when you're a child. 2009, uh, the movie came out, Where the Wild Things Are. It was uh, based on Maurice Sendick's classic. And in this story, it it follows a young boy who feels like he's neglected by his mother and father, and he enters into this magical world where these, there's these big hairy creatures, and at first they're trying to eat him. 
And then he convinces him, convinces them that he's a king and he has magical powers. And so they believe that he's a king and that he's going to protect their kingdom. And so they ask him, will you keep out all sadness? And still acting in his role as the king, he says, of course I will. I have a sadness shield and I'll protect the kingdom with this sadness shield so no sadness can come near. Don't we all wish that we had something like that? Don't we wish that we had a sadness shield that would keep us from the losses of life? Yet each and every one of us experience loss. Nobody's immune to pain and suffering. And in this passage, we see that that's also true of our Savior, that He knew what it was like to suffer. And ultimately, we know that He knew what it was like to even die. And as we look at this passage, we see a very human and very, in some ways, raw response to death. He, Jesus is encountering a funeral service. And as we look at his encounter with this funeral service, I think there's a number of things that we can learn on what it looks like to respond to grief, disappointment, or sadness. The first thing that we learn is that it's common to question. It's common to question God. Jesus hears that his friend Lazarus is ill, and instead of going to Lazarus' side, instead of healing him, he stays exactly where he's at. Doesn't do anything about it. We don't know exactly why he does that. Why does he stay where he's at? We don't know. But then after Lazarus dies, then Jesus goes to him. And Mary and Martha come up and uh, they have the same exact statement or, or very similar. They say, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Now, I think maybe Mary was maybe even a little bit angry at Jesus. You know, you look at this story and it says that Martha, when she heard that Jesus was coming, Martha ran out to Jesus, but Mary stayed where she was at. And it wasn't until later that she came out. We don't know for sure. But perhaps she was even angry at Jesus that Jesus could have come. He could have healed her brother. And yet he did and he stayed where he was at. They probably thought in their minds, Jesus, if you care about us, if you loved us, why wouldn't you do something? Why wouldn't you intervene? And I think that's kind of similar to the questions that we often ask when difficult ha things happen in our life. We say, God, why didn't you act? Why didn't you help me? Why didn't you intervene? If you really love me, why wouldn't you have changed this circumstance? It's common to question. And yet Mary and Martha can only see their hurt. They can't see the whole picture. Now Jesus can see the whole picture. Jesus knows what he's about to do. He knows why he has allowed Lazarus to die and why he's going to raise up Lazarus from the grave. You see, many people, it seems that even some of Jesus' disciples didn't understand who he was. They thought perhaps he was a prophet, a man of God, but not the Son of God. And now, once and for all, he's going to demonstrate to them that he is the Son of God, that his power goes even to the grave, and that he has a relationship with the Father, that he is the Father's own Son. And so he's going to cause people around him to believe in him through this event, demonstrating his power over death. But in the moment, Mary and Martha can only see their pain. They can only see their hurt. They can only see that their brother is dead. When we experience pain and suffering, often that's all we can see. We can only see our loss. But as believers, we know that we don't see the whole picture. We know that God has a plan that 
maybe seems crazy to us, that seems absurd to us, but we trust that He's working all things for our good and his, for His glory. So it's natural, it's common to question. The second thing we see in this passage is it's okay to be angry. Verse 34 says this, When Jesus saw her weeping, speaking of Mary, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and was greatly troubled. Now, when I've read this passage in the past, I've been a little bit, uh, I've, I've read it one way, and I think the English translation of this is a little bit deceiving. This word for deeply moved, uh, when I first read it, I thought of, you know, some being, you know, kind of empathetic, that Jesus was moved with compassion. But the word behind that is very different. The word behind that literally is often uh, connoted with snorting, like an animal snorting. Think about a bull who's angry and snorting, getting ready to, ready to run you over. So it denotes anger. So Jesus in this passage, he's angry. He's deeply moved with anger. And so the question comes, what is he angry at? And there's a couple different options. First option is maybe he's angry at the fact that people don't believe in him, that people uh, don't believe that he can actually raise Lazarus from the grave. That's a possibility. He also could be angry at death itself, angry at the pain and the suffering that death has caused on those he loved. And perhaps it's a little bit of both. Perhaps he's upset that they don't uh, believe in him, that they, they're grieving like the world does, but also upset that death has caused such devastation on this family and friends. Now, when I was in high school, I played hockey, and in my senior year, we were in the playoffs. We'd never gone to the playoffs before, and if we won this series, we'd get to go down to uh, Key Bank Center and play in what's called Super Sunday. And I remember playing that game, and uh, remember we started losing, and after we started losing, the other team was up by a goal or two, and then all of a sudden they started cheating. What happened was when you play hockey, there's a curfew clock and then there's a game clock. The curfew clock is, is basically the ice that, time that you've paid for, and then when that, that runs out, then you have to leave the ice, and the game clock is, you know, like the regular periods that you have in hockey. And so what they did was they all of a sudden mysteriously started getting hurt after they were up by a goal or two, started laying down on the ice, wouldn't get up, pretending they were hurt so that the curfew clock would run out and the game would be over. And I remember in that moment just being so angry, not just because we were losing, but also because they were cheating in doing it. And I think about that, and I wonder if that's a little bit what Jesus is experiencing. Now, he knows what's going to happen. He knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the grave. He knows that he's going to go die for the sins of humanity, that he's going to defeat sin and death once and for all. But in this moment, death is winning. In this moment, unbelief is winning. In this moment, sin is winning. And I believe that he just is moved to anger as he sees sin winning among humanity. He's angry at the human condition and the pain that sin has caused. And I think the same thing is true for us as believers. Even though as believers, we know the final outcome. We know what's going to happen. We know that God works all things for good. In the moment, sometimes it seems like evil is winning. It seems like death is winning. And in those moments, it's natural and sometimes maybe even appropriate to be angry at the state of humanity because we were never meant to live in this fallen world. 
We were never meant to experience sin and temptation and death. We were never meant to experience loss. We were created to live forever in a perfect relationship with God and relationship with one another. And so sometimes it seems like death is winning, and in those moments, it's natural and appropriate to be angry because our souls revolt against it. David Bentley Hart, in an essay written after the tragic tsunamis, 2004, wrote this. He said, Our faith is in a God who has come to rescue His creation from the absurdity of sin and the emptiness of death. And so we're permitted to hate these things with a perfect hatred. It's perfectly appropriate to be angry about the way that things are. Now, we don't want to live in that anger, but there's this movement of our souls when we see things happening that are not of God. We see sin and death winning. So that's the second thing. It shows us that it's okay to be angry because Jesus was angry in this passage. The third thing we see in this passage is it's okay to grieve. Verse 35, it says Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the whole Bible, but I think one of the most profound verses in the whole Bible. Another way that some have translated it is that Jesus burst into tears. It's remarkable compared to the other gods that the the Greeks and the Romans had who were kind of unmoved by the affairs of men, who were kind of only interested in their own interests, to have a God who cares enough about His creation to cry, to weep, is incredible. Especially since in our culture, crying or grief, and even in, in their culture, is often seen as abnormal or as a sign of weakness. 2011, Slate Magazine did a survey on grief and loss from 10,000 of their readers. And in analyzing the data, they came to the following conclusions. They said one of the hardest aspects of mourning is feeling that one's own grief is somehow not normal or has gone unrecognized. Many respondents wanted to explain how uncomfortable, they said a word that appeared over and over, they felt their grief had made others. The responses seem to expect to suggest both an expectation from others that grievers should grieve a little and the concurrent desire that the mourner should not grieve too much. See, in short, when we're experiencing grief and sadness, we feel like we're alone sometimes. Other people, well-wishers, they, they want to understand, they might want to help, but they just don't know what we're going through. Our struggle is different than another person's struggle. They, despite their fact that they want to help us, they just can't walk in our shoes. They just can't understand like we can. Like we can. Yet we serve a God who does understand. We see, serve a God who is not just grieved at the state of humanity, but who grieves with humanity. Who walks with us through pain and suffering. Who knows what it's like to suffer. Who knows perfectly what we're going through and is there for us every step of the way. In Isaiah 53, 3-4, it says this, He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Psalm 34, 18 says this, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. We don't need to be ashamed or feel guilty about grieving, about sadness, 
because it's part of the reality of living in a broken and fallen world. Oz Guinness in his book Unspeakable says this. He says that we're free, we are free to feel what is human to feel. Sorrow at what is heartbreaking. Shock at what is shattering. And outrage at what is flagrantly out of joint. To pretend otherwise is to be too pious by half and harder on ourselves than Jesus himself was. So we see it's okay to be angry. Jesus was angry. It's okay to grieve. Jesus grieved. Another thing we see in this passage is that we often want to put sin and darkness out of our mind. Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus and he says, roll away the stone from the tomb. Martha speaks up and she says, Jesus, he's been in the grave for four days. He stinks by now. In the old King James, I think it says, he stinketh. He's been there four days. And by the way, it's not wintertime. It's, I think, summertime at the time. It's warm. And his body's decaying. He doesn't want to have to relive. She doesn't want to have to relive seeing her body, her brother's decaying corpse. But what if she knew what was about to happen? What if she knew the miracle that Jesus was about to proclaim in Lazarus' life? Would she be so afraid of it? Would she be afraid to roll away the stone? I suggest that maybe she would be going and helping roll away the stone. Let's get this stone away from the tomb as soon as possible so that we can see our brother again. But instead, she covered it up, not believing that Jesus could raise the dead. I think as a culture, we've tried to put death out of our minds to ignore it, to avoid it as much as possible. And if you can see that in various aspects of society where we've just tried to act as if death doesn't exist. It wasn't always that way. Back in the medieval times, uh, monks would actually put a human skull on their desk to remind themselves of their mortality. 17th century uh, group of paintings called Vanitas performed the same function. They often might feature a gold pocket watch ticking next to a wilting bouquet of flowers or ripening fruit sitting side by side with a human skull. Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard recommend, recommended allowing death to enter our consciousness to spur us towards a deeper appreciation of life and greater motivation to help fellow humans. And I think we can even avoid the topic of death even in churches. We act as if it doesn't exist. Mark Gailey says this, I sometimes wonder whether our church is living as we do in America, in American death-denying culture, relentlessly smiling through our praise choruses, are inadvertently helping people living, live not as much in hope as in denial. We can't ignore death. We can't act as if it doesn't exist. We have to remember that all of us have an expiration date. And that's not to be morbid. You know, some people will take that and just, you know, oh, it doesn't matter what we do. We're going to die tomorrow. You know, we're going, to be, we're going to be dead soon. It doesn't matter what we do. It's not about being mortared. It's just about being realistic about what's going to happen. And for believers in Jesus, we don't have to fear like the world fears. For us, it's just a reality. It's not something that we look forward to as an end, but as a beginning, in essence. Donald Barnhouse, a great theologian and pastor, um, lost his wife very young age. And he had a number of children, young children. And uh, remarkably, he preached at his wife's funeral. And he was on his way to the funeral, and his young children were in the car. And he felt like he had to say something to them, to give them some kind of 
encouragement, even though uh, he was just trying to hold it together himself. And so they're on the way, and they're at a stoplight, and uh, it was a sunny day, and the sun is just shining through their car. And then a big semi came and came up next to them, and then the shadow from the semi overtook the sunlight. Barnhouse said to his children, so kids, what do you think is worse? Would it be worse to be hit by the semi or by the shadow? Well, the daughter said, oh, daddy, that's a silly question. The shadow can't hurt you. I'd rather be hit by the shadow than by a truck. Then he went on to explain that their mother had been hit by the shadow, not by the truck. That Jesus had been hit by the truck. His mother, their mother had only been hit by the shadow. He went on to encourage them with the verses of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. See, we don't have to deny death because we don't have to fear death. Death is just a shadow. Death is just a vanquished enemy. Death is going to be defeated once and for all in Christ. So we don't have to hide death. We don't have to avoid death. We don't have to pretend as if it doesn't exist. We can accept it in faith, knowing that it's not the end, knowing it's just the shadow. The final thing that we see in this passage and I think the most encouraging thing is that we can rejoice even in the midst of pain and sorrow. We can rejoice in the midst of pain and sorrow. In this circumstance where it seems that death is winning, unbelief is reigning, people are grieving, such sorrow has overtaken people's hearts, Jesus looks up to the Father before He raises Lazarus, and He says, Father, thank You that You, hear, you have heard Me. See, apparently... Jesus had been praying. He had been praying all along. Of course, he had a perfect relationship with the Father. But he had prayed that Lazarus would be raised. And God was going to answer his prayer. Death was not going to win. And so he can thank God, even in this circumstance, that God hears his voice. And I think as we look to the cross and we look to the events of Jesus' life, I think in a sense, God has answered our prayers God has answered our cry even before we pray, even before we cry out. See, we come to God and we're like, God, I don't know why you allowed this to happen. If you really loved me, you would intervene. If you loved me, you would be here. You would have stopped this. And Jesus looks at us and he says, I understand. I know what you're going through. And I did do something. And he looks at us with love in his eyes and grace in his heart, and he shows us his nail-scarred hands. We look at Jesus and say, God, I, there's so many things that happen in this world that I just can't deal with. God, there's so much pain, there's so much suffering, there's so much injustice, and, and I'm just so angry that you allow these things to happen. And Jesus says, I understand. I'm angry too. I'm angry. You weren't meant to live this way. And one day I'm going to come back and make all things right. And then he looks at us with love in his eyes and grace in his hands, or grace in his heart, and he shows us his nail scarred hands. Say, Jesus, I'm sad. There's a hole in my heart. I don't know how I can get out of this. I don't know how I can move on. I'm just filled with grief and sadness. And Jesus says, I know what you're going through. I know what it's like to be sad, and 
I'm grieving right with you. My tears are your tears. And he looks at us. Love in his eyes, grace in his heart. He shows us his nail-scarred hands. Say, Jesus, I can't deal with this reality of death. It's just too much to think about. To think about loss and think about all of our loved ones eventually dying. It's just too much to handle. And Jesus looks at us and says, you don't have to be afraid of death. Death is just a shadow. Death is just a mirage. And he looks at us with love in his eyes, grace in his heart. And he shows us his nail-scarred hands. The cross demonstrates once and for all that God hears us. He hears our cry. He sees our condition. He knows what we're going through, and he chose to do something about it. Because of that, there's nothing in this world that we cannot face. Because God hears our cries. Psalm 145, 18 and 19 says this, The Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says this, And this is the confidence that we have towards him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. In the 1830s, 1840s, a man named Samuel Morse was working on the telegraph, which eventually would go on to uh, transform communication. And one of the dreams that he had was to have a transatlantic uh, telegraph. And during that time frame, you know, if you think about back to 1492 when Columbus sailed, it took him two, two months to get from the old world to the new world. Uh, even a century later, it took, or almost a century later, later, it took the Mayflower just a week longer than that. Got a little bit faster. Uh, two centuries later, sailing ships had reduced the time to, two, to six weeks. By 1845, a steam-powered ship, the SSS Great Britain, set a record of 14 days from the old world to the new world. That was incredible by those uh, in that day, by their standards. But it still meant that news took two weeks to travel from the old world to new world. So he wanted to fix this. So he started working with the telegraph and, 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 and did a number of things with that, and he tested it across the New York Harbor. What he did was he put the electrical wires inside of a lead pipes and then put rubber on top, put it in the water, and it was successful, but it wasn't very long before that rubber deteriorated and the wires were, were no good anymore. So then there was a man named Cyrus Field, and he joined Samuel Morse, and, uh, Samuel Morse, and uh, he, he made it his goal to have this transatlantic telegraph. And so he started this project, and it was able to lay a cable all the way across from the old world to new world. It's 1858, and there was a message that was sent from Queen Victoria to President James Buchanan. It was believed to be a smashing success, but three weeks later, the cable inexplicably stopped working. And all that time, all that money, all that effort that had been put into that was for naught. It took him a long time to recover from that. By 1865, he decided he was going to try it again. His next attempt, he, as the ship was going across, the cable broke, fell into the ocean. They weren't able to cover, recover the end of, of the cable that fell. Finally, that by 1866, they were able to lay a, a cable that lasted across from the old world to the new world. 
In that moment, communication changed forever. It was a precursor to the internet and people being connected. His brother, Henry, said this. He said, an ocean cable is not an iron chain lying cold and dead in the icy depths of the Atlantic. He said, it's a living, fleshly bond between severed portions of the human family, along which pulses of love and tenderness will run backward and forward forever. For Field, it wasn't just about a cable. It wasn't just about an electrical device. It was about bringing people together. And in doing this, laying this cable, he brought together the old world and the new world. In a similar way to Field laying that cable and bringing together, bring people together. Through the cross, Jesus brings people together. Jesus brings people into a relationship with God. The cross is God's communication to humanity once and for all. I hear you. I love you. I care about you. But not only that, the cross is the bridge so that we can have a relationship with God. So that we can communicate with Him. So that no matter what we're experiencing in our life, we can have the confidence that He cures us and He cares about us. Thank the Lord that death will not have the final word. Thank the Lord that we can call upon Him each day and night. I'd like to leave you with this. We can rejoice in suffering because God hears us when we cry out to Him. We can rejoice in suffering. That doesn't mean that we'd be happy. But we can have a joy knowing that God knows. God understands. God cares about us. Death will not win. The grave will not have victory. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to the pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that he has heard our cries and he has acted once and for all in the cross and resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you came to the earth to rescue us, to redeem us, to die on the cross for us, to rise again so that we might have life. We thank you that you're a God not who stands far off from us, but a God who came to the earth and grieved with us, who was angry at the things that were happening in this world that bring you shame and bring us harm, Lord, and that you were grieved over the depth of people's grief and the way that sin had affected them, Lord. We thank you that you're a God who cares for us. We thank you that you're a God who hears us. We thank you that through the cross... You've connected us once and for all with the Father that we can call out to Him day or nay, night with the confidence that He hears us and He loves us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.